Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Road Light Project is sponsored by Cozy Earth. So you know those moments where you slip into something ridiculously soft and comfortable, and it kind of feels like a warm hug? That's the Cozy Earth experience. I can still remember the first time I tried their bamboo sheets. It was like wrapping myself in a cozy cloud. But Cozy Earth is not just about bedding. They've got an entire line of loungewear that'll make you never want to change out of your pajamas. My personal favorite is their bamboo joggers. Like everything else they make, they're just incredibly soft and breathable and temperature regulating so you never get too hot or too cold. Perfect for those lazy Sunday mornings or bopping around the house. And the best part, Cozy Earth's commitment to quality means all their products come with a 100-night sleep trial and a 10-year warranty. So if you're looking to transform your home into a sanctuary of comfort and luxury, I highly recommend giving Cozy Earth a try. Save up to 35% on Cozy Earth loungewear, pajamas, bedding, bath towels, and more. Go to CozyEarth.com and enter the promo code GOODLIFE at checkout for up to 35% off. That's CozyEarth.com promo code GOODLIFE or just click on the link in the show notes and enter the code GOODLIFE. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. So imagine stepping out of your day-to-day life and just dropping yourself into a gorgeous 130-acre natural playground for three and a half days of learning and laughing and moving your body and calming your brain and reconnecting with people who just see the world the way that you do and accept you completely as you are. So that's what we've created with our Camp Good Life Project or Camp GLP experience. We've actually brought together a lineup of really inspiring teachers from art to entrepreneurship, from writing to meditation, pretty much everything in between. It's this beautiful way to fill your noggin with ideas to live and work better and a really rare opportunity to create the type of friendships and stories you pretty much thought you'd left behind decades ago. It's all happening at the end of August, just about 90 minutes from New York City. 
and we're well on our way to selling out spots at this point. So be sure to grab your spot as soon as you can if it's interesting to you. You can learn more at goodlifeproject.com slash camp or just go ahead and click the link in the show notes now. I think it's mostly the love of entrepreneurship, wanting to work for myself and being excited by that and then letting other people have the opportunity to have that because so many people want that. You know, it's like you're living the dream. Today's guest, Susie Daly, went to school and got her degree in psychology and religion and somehow ended up running the world's largest outdoor craft fair called Renegade Craft Fair, where they actually operate in nine cities and now they're going international. That is quite a departure. And today's conversation traces her journey from growing up the daughter of a successful lawyer who uh, built his own firm in five different places to going to school and then having this what seems to be a radical departure into the world of crafting and making and then becoming an entrepreneur who has created a pretty huge platform and also a conduit for a lot of other creators in the space to be able to earn a living. So really fun diving into her life and also a lot of the nitty gritty and the details about how she actually built Renegade Craft Fair and where she's heading with it. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. So we're hanging out here on the Upper West Side of New York City. You're in town. I would love to think it's just because you flew in for this, but but you're actually here because you have an event that you're running this weekend, and we're going to dive into that and what it's all about and stuff like that. So you have this incredible, you should call it a movement, Renegade Craft, which is a series of really cool maker slash craft slash interactive experiences around the country. I want to explore a lot more about what those are. Let's take a jump back in time, though, because whenever somebody creates something like that, where you've got hundreds of thousands of people experiencing these things around the country, I'm curious where that all came from. (laughs) Yeah, I just started it for fun, actually. I was taking some time off after I graduated college and just kind of working in the service industry and started making jewelry and wanted to start selling my work at fairs and festivals, but couldn't really find anything that catered to the type of work I was making and the type of work I knew other people were making, kind of like independent crafters. And so I just thought for the hell of it, like, why don't I just go ahead and start my own? And is it okay to say that? Yeah, you can, this is the awesome thing about podcasts okay. is basically you can say whatever you want okay. to say. <laughs> so yeah, first I started it for fun and then I fell in love with it. It was an instant success and it just felt so good to have started something like that, that people came out to something I had created. And so I just ran with it. So what did you go to college for too? I'm curious. I actually got my bachelor's in psychology and huh. religious studies. So, okay, so back from a degree in psychology and religious studies to running the renegade craft, were you a crafter as a kid? Were you a maker? A little bit. I made a little bit of jewelry just as a kid, and my mom was a crafter, so I grew up around that. But yeah. I didn't you know, consider myself super crafty or anything. It was just more something I did for fun and started to sell things here and there, and that was kind of just exciting, and it just developed from there that I like sold my work at the fairs at first. But then once I started growing the fairs more and more, that became my real passion. And that's what I kind of just, you know, 
kept growing and developing. And here we are 13 years later. So it sounds like this really, it wasn't designed to be a business. No, I didn't have any business experience. Yeah. I mean, I didn't go to school for business. I had never thought I would necessarily start my own business. I kind of, you know, just like I said, started it for fun and then had to go through the process of like starting a business (laughs) as a result of that. So in those early days, like, so you're out there and, and you also said you were applying to other places, but getting rejected. What's up with that? <laughs> I didn't apply and get rejected, but in trying to look into application processes, like some art fairs didn't allow crafts, like crafts were kind of like, like it's not, not sort of trendy at the time. Qualify as yeah, they, you know, it just was kind of like poo pooed or something. And it was like before craft became cool again, I think. And that's why. And then the craft fairs that were around were more just kind of like your traditional craft fairs, like way out in the suburbs, you know, nothing really catering to kind of like young independent makers that were making kind of like this new style of craft. So not very, you know, traditional, but more just kind of like everything is even just like conceived, you know, like from scratch, like no patterns or anything were being used. People were just kind of like making their own thing. It kind of started, I think, with zines and like that kind of thing, but then slowly developed into other things like clothing and apothecary and jewelry and these kinds of things. So yeah, it seems like the just the whole definition of craft is really shifting these days. And I think that's sort of what you're speaking to. You know, when I actually grew up the son of a, of a potter. Mm-hmm. So, and she would be in the basement, she had a studio with, you know, like wheels throwing clay. And then on the weekends, we would all pack up the car with everything, you know, and then go to a, a street fair yeah, and sell all that stuff. And it was very fringe then, but it seems like sort of craft these days has become kind of hip. And a lot, it seems like there's also people changing the language around it. You know, I go to the maker fair with my daughter every year. So it seems like, you know, the the old language of making crafts or crafting. Mm-hmm. seems like a lot of people these days are talking about making. Mm-hmm. Is that the same thing in your mind or is it just a shift in language or are they actually talking about different stuff? I think it's just a shift in language. I think it's just a more contemporary way that it's evolved into the way people talk about it or something and trying to kind of like relate it more to it being like more design based, you know, and more designer than maybe like traditional crafts like you were saying you'd go to the street fairs or something like that or you go to the the traditional craft fairs where it's like they sell you know root beer and corn on the cob and like all these things and those are fun too but i think this is like a different kind of group altogether so it's like we're doing the same things but it is completely different at the same time yeah uh, yeah something just popped into my head as you were just saying that too which is i wonder if part of that evolution has to do with making it feel more okay for men. I have, I mean, you've been doing this for 13 years now, so I'm, I'm not entrenched in the world. I'm curious whether you think that's all part of it. And actually, I'm curious what the makeup is of the vendors at your places. Yeah, we have some men. It is, you know, predominantly women still. I don't know if like those terms evolved to make it more, you know, friendly to men necessarily, but to the artists and like how they feel about their work, like maybe they do feel like it's more, I don't know, it's like a step up or something from just traditional crafts. I mean, I think like crafty still has this kind of like... Yeah, as a guy who I, I hope is relatively in touch with sort of like the, the feminine in, in me, 
I'm like picturing somebody asking me like, you know, what do I do at a you know, dinner party and me saying I'm a crafter. I don't think I, I feel comfortable <laughs> saying that. But I have said a number of times I'm a maker. Mm-hmm. And I love working with my hands and creating stuff, which fundamentally is going to be a lot of the same stuff that you would throw under like the umbrella of craft. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's funny just like on a personal level. I'd be much more comfortable sort of under the maker label, which is weird to me. I didn't think I would actually <laughs> I don't think you're alone in that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder if that's a, that's part of what it's about also. It's interesting. So take me into this. So you start this thing largely because you're looking for a way to take the work that you're doing mm-hmm. and have a place to share it with people. Did you start alone or was this a... Uh, I started with a childhood friend of mine originally, and so yeah. we did it together for a few years and then kind of parted ways after that. Nah. Was there a moment that you remember where you, you said to yourself, oh, this is actually something bigger than I ever thought it would be or than I intended it to be? Yeah. I mean, pretty early on, even before we had our first event, we had people starting to apply from all around the country. Mm. And that really took me by surprise and was proof that we had kind of tapped into something that didn't exist like anywhere in the United States. So we started our first event in Chicago, but we ended up getting people traveling from like, you know, Olympia, Washington and like all these places to participate because there's nothing else like it. And so when those applications started rolling in, I was very excited. And then when we had our first event and people came out and it worked, yeah, I think it was definitely way more successful than I thought. Yeah. You know, initially it was going to be. What do you think it it is about what you were doing that led people to come from Olympia, Washington? Mm-hmm. I'm imagining they probably drove because they've got a whole bunch of stuff, right? That's a long drive to, to Chicago. Yeah. What do you think it, it was about this that would lead all of these people to seek you out? I think it was kind of like just what we were talking about, how people felt like they were more makers, like somehow they were making work that was different than traditional crafts but it wasn't fine art either. And what we were doing was very approachable and affordable and, you know, just kind of catering to this niche. So I think that's what it was. It was just really filling this void for people. And they were able to connect to people that, you know, wanted to see their work specifically. And this was kind of like burgeoning online before the market, you know, happened. And so people were kind of becoming aware of each other, like people were making the same types of things in the same style. And so I think they just recognized that just kind of through our, you know, website, our branding, our messaging, and yeah. just keeping it approachable and fun. And I think your branding and your messaging, I think is a huge part of it. So take me into sort of how you decide how that came to be because Renegade Craft, it's not your average, you know, sort of like, hey, this is the name of our local craft fair. And it seems like the vibe you create and the story you're telling is is very deliberate and very different. Yeah. Well, that started very early on, like when my friend and I were looking into joining these other events. They were kind of expensive and they wanted like slides of your work. And we weren't quite at that point yet. And we just wanted it to be you know, easier. And so we were just on the phone one day and kind of talking about how disappointed we were and just like, why doesn't this event accept crafts? And like, where else could we join on? And, you know, my friend actually, I think said, you know, I wish there was just a renegade craft fair, you know, kind of like, and that's when a light bulb went off. (laughs) And I was like, we should just do our own. (laughs) Very cool. And I mean, it also, it really feels like you built... Did that name 
and that idea because it sounds like it you didn't just put you know take the name but you really build i mean if you go to your website you know you've got you know like values and you got beliefs and you've got it's more of like a movement ideology behind it rather than hey let's actually build some really cool just alternative fairs sure there's definitely i think a lifestyle that you know has been built out of all of this. So originally, I mean, we don't, we didn't really have that kind of messaging. I mean, that's come a long way to where we are today. But yeah, I think we just wanted to like with the name, it just kind of spoke to people like instantaneously. You knew that it was going to somehow be different than a craft fair. It was a renegade craft fair, and I think people were drawn to that and. Like that it was kind of like this fresh new approach to a kind of more traditional market. Yeah. And I think on both sides also, because the people who were making stuff were probably like, oh, (laughs) this is telegraphing to them. Like, this is cool. (laughs) This is different. And then the people who are looking for somewhere to go also, it's kind of like, oh, this is not your average, you know, sort of uh, art fair on the weekend. Um, Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's just a totally different vibe. Yep. We set up our first fair in a park, Wicker Park in Chicago, which is just like a really nice little park, like pretty setting with trees. And it's also on like a main street and in like an artistic neighborhood. And so people could just come across the event by walking by. And so we didn't even have to do a ton of advertising or anything, but it just, it looked fun, you know, just kind of like walking by. And I think People just love that it was like free and easy and you could just meander through and like meet really cool people and see really cool work that, you know, they hadn't seen before. And so, yeah, I mean, the the whole thing, it still just feels like fresh to me. Yeah. What was it like the moment you sort of decided, okay, we're going to do this and we're going to commit to it and we're going to reserve Wicker Park Mm -hmm. and go public with the fact that we're doing this and we have no idea if anyone's Mm going to show up or sign up to be vendors. I know. I just don't even think we thought through that. We just knew it would work out somehow or I just was so excited about it that and just had the drive and I just did it. I didn't even think about what might go wrong or like, are people going to come or whatever? I just spent my time making sure that it would be a success and that we advertised and got the word out and got people to come. And, you know, it was basically just had the idea on that phone conversation and for whatever reason, just immediately thought of Wicker Park and called the park district to see how we could go about renting the park. And I don't even think they charged us a fee at the time. They just thought like, you're (laughs) doing a craft fair what i mean i think we paid like a 25 dollars application fee and that was <laughs> it awesome. and so we didn't have a lot of overhead <laughs> lot, expenses of there, yeah right, right. so yeah yeah i mean that, that's so cool and was the very first one sort of like an immediate success yeah we had beautiful weather i think that had a lot to do with like just people being able to come out and having a nice day and having fun at the event so it was just a one-day event and then just kind of like slowly grew it from there the next year we did a two-day event and then the third year is when we started expanding into new cities yeah so you started this primarily though because you were also making stuff yourself Mm -hmm. but at some point this becomes actually you had to make a decision like is this an outlet for my stuff or is this really, you know, a thing that I'm going to pour all of my energy into? And you also, didn't you run a store at some point also? Yep. I had a store for five so years. So what was we, tell me that story. Well, I actually wanted to open a store before all of 
this came about. I wanted to open a vintage clothing store. Mm. And that's what my friend and I were originally going to do. And so, like, basically we started the craft fair. And then I'm trying to think how many years later it was we opened the store. It was just a few years later that we opened the store. But we based it more on the craft fair. And so we consigned work from artists. And we sold our vintage stuff off, like, right when we opened. And then just focused on the crafts. And we had that for five years. But our overhead expenses were so high that you know it never made money just was like always losing money but i'm still glad i did it it was a cute little place but it only lasted five years and then i was like we need to focus all of our energy on the fairs you know because we could just bring it to new cities and that's what was really like the most successful and where my passions were at were with the fairs and not necessarily in retail yeah what was the moment where you realized that you had to make that shift like what clicked I think like I wanted to grow the fair, but I was spread too thin. So with the store, it just kind of started to feel like it was too much of a burden and too much to keep up with. And you have to keep it clean and nice and stocked. And our model of consignment like didn't totally work out in the end. So, you know, it's 2020 in hindsight. I probably would have done it a little bit different to make it a little bit more manageable and not be stuck with a bunch of stock that people kind of sent us to get rid of in some cases yeah, yeah. and doesn't sell. The unsellable stuff. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. Put it on your shelves, not mine. <laughs> yeah. And I never had worked retail and, you know, opened this retail store and right. just, you know, didn't really know what I was getting into, I think. And we had a good run at five years, but then I just was like wanted to do the fairs. I wanted to work from home and, you know, have more Mm. flexibility and stuff. Yeah. Was there any angst tied up in that decision in terms of, because it was the same brand as the fairs, right? It was Renegade Handmade, so slightly different. Did people associate them or like did people kind of know that they were connected or not so much, right? So I'm curious, like, did you have any thought going through your mind that was saying, well, but if we fold the store, it may telegraph something about the bigger brand that it's not working or were you just kind of like, you know what? I'm good. It's done. I need to just focus looking forward entirely. That's how I felt. I, it always felt more like an offshoot of the fair. And I think people knew that too. Okay. And so I wasn't worried about that necessarily. And because we were able to say that this will give us the opportunity to grow the fair. So we were explaining that the fair was actually growing. And so I don't think anybody thought there was like a downturn. And we also were, we opened the store kind of like right when the recession hit and everything like that. Oh, no kidding. So yeah, I don't think people were <laughs> surprised when people were closing stuff down ever, you know, around yeah. that time. So. so I'm amazed actually that you kept it open for five years given that. Yeah. I mean, the store actually did really well. It's just uh, our overhead was so expensive. And so we had to split everything also 50-50 with the artists. And so the fair always just kind of like subsidized it. But, yeah. Um, you make the decision at some point that, okay, this is being really successful in Chicago, but this potentially could be a much bigger brand. It sounds like that was starting to happen before you shut down the store, but that that was the thing that opened up the bandwidth for you to really just completely go all in and expand. Take me to sort of like the the thought process in the moment where you're thinking to yourself, okay, we want to go from a city that we know and love and like we kind of own what's happening here to starting to just expand to all sorts of different cities on the ground where we don't necessarily know the culture. We don't know if it's going to work the same. Talk me through that a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, I love to travel. And so I actually just was walking through Brooklyn one day and happened upon McCarran Park. Mm. And it reminded me very much of Wicker Park where we started the fair. And that's when it dawned on me like, 
maybe I should look into renting this park and maybe we should do this event here because all these makers, you know, are all over the country. And so and, and Brooklyn, also the making culture in Brooklyn is astonishing. Yeah. Yeah. And Brooklyn alone is if the stats are right, the fourth largest city in the in the country. Wow, yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And Williamsburg was just like so hot at the time. Yeah. I mean, it's even more developed now. But yeah. um, at the time, it just seemed, I don't know, it just clicked, you know? Again, it wasn't like a conscious decision and a business decision. Like we never ran numbers. I mean, it was like so very early on just kind of doing everything out of kind of like instinct or passion, you know? Mm. And so I, again, just kind of called up the parks district and asked them how we go about renting the park. Again, I don't think they charged us anything. They didn't understand, you know, what we were doing. And that was, a you know, success. And so we continued to do it in Chicago and Brooklyn. And then next I brought it to San Francisco because it's just another city I love. And yeah. Which park did you do in San Francisco? We actually couldn't rent out parks in San Francisco. They huh. don't really let you do that quite as much because they want to reserve them for, you know, just like communities, which right. makes sense. So I had trouble finding a venue there. It took me like a year or two. But then finally we ended up doing it at Fort Mason, which is a really beautiful. That's not by the, the marina or the Presidio? It is. Yeah, okay. that's where that's it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's an awesome part of the city too. Yeah. So how many places are you at now? How many now cities? Now we're in nine cities. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. I think we're doing 25 <laughs> events this year altogether. What's driving you right now? <laughs> I think just still that passion, you know, like that I just love it and want to see it grow and continue to grow it and continue to bring it to new cities. And we constantly get people asking us to come and do a fair in their city. And so that's like kind of how it progressed too. Is like originally I was just taking it to places that I've been to and I love and thought it would be successful. But then people were, you know, saying like, come to Los Angeles, come to Austin, come to Denver and all these things. And so it's been a little bit of just kind of like trying to fill the demand too and just, you know, bringing the fair to people, like to the makers in those cities and the people in those cities to be able to kind of be a part of this, you know? Yeah. So how do you choose where to go though? Because I'm guessing you probably get a lot of requests from a lot of different places and you've got to, you know, you got to go at a pace where you can keep it sustainable. So how do you choose like who who goes next? Well, it's kind of based on size of the city. Like that's where we're most successful is in urban areas. That's obviously where the most people live. So we get the most attendees at those events. Mm -hmm. So we're in a lot of just like of the major cities right now. And then we do an event in London, which I did just for the fun of it again. Like my dad had his own business at one point and he had kind of like – branches, offices in different cities and like traveled a lot for work. And so I was kind of like inspired by him to, I think, do this a little bit too. And just that's why we expanded to London. I mean, they have a huge maker culture there too. Yeah. And so. And they latched onto the brand the same way because sometimes you never know. Yeah. Actually, some cities it's taken like a few years to break in, I will say. I'm I think kidding. London was one of those. But the venue is like a destination. So that's part of it. So I think it catches on more quickly when we're in a more public space. Um, right, where people are already just either going or passing through exactly. as part of whatever they're up to. Yeah, so we kind of have to like figure out 
what marketing we need to do in some of these new cities. Cause like you said, I mean, we don't live there. We don't have people on the ground in those cities. Like we're all, well, half of us are based in Chicago and then half of us are kind of scattered around the country now, but we don't have people kind of like doing local recon for us. You know, we do Mm. it all in house. So it's a little bit of a challenge, but yeah. Like how much of this actually is about you loving to make really cool things? How much of it is about you? Sounds like kind of falling in love with entrepreneurship to a certain Mm -hmm. extent and also having this mad Jones to travel. Mm -hmm. I think it's mostly like the love of entrepreneurship and wanting to work for myself and being excited by that. And then letting other people have the opportunity to have that because so many people want that, you know, it's like you're living the dream or whatever they say. But I think that for me is just like, I want to do this for a living. And then it's like, where can we bring it to next? Like, where can I travel to? What city can I fall in love with next? And it just feels really good when people tell you like what you're doing is helping them do what they love. Mm. So that's a big part of it too, you know? So it's a lot of hard work, you know, owning your own business and everything. And there's so many details in event planning. Like, I mean, sometimes we're all just like running around like chickens with our heads cut up. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just so much work, but Yeah, I think we just do it because we want to continue bringing it to new cities. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing also because we run our own events as well. We actually run pretty much every summer at the end of the summer. We take over a kid's sleepaway camp. Oh, cool. And so we have this adult summer camp where, you know, like this year, probably between four and 500 people will come and live there too for, for, for almost four days. It's amazing to see what happens when you get a community together on the ground in person, which is profoundly different than online. Yeah. And at the same time, it's astonishingly complex. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just like maneuvering that. I'm curious whether this has been like the consistent thing with you, but no matter how much you plan, no matter how much you think you got everything, stuff always goes wrong. Like you can absolutely count on it. You know, you're going to have to spend the entire time like flying around, just sort of like fixing stuff as it goes bad. Yeah. We put out a lot of fires. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. There's just, I mean, we go into it now just kind of like at peace with the fact that a whole bunch of stuff is going to (laughs) break. Do people and camp out? Or? They sleep in the kids' bunks. Oh, wow. So, so yeah. they have room for that many people there? Oh, yeah. They, they, actually, the facility that we use, I think, has room for six or 700 people. But we don't go that big because that would require putting too many people. Yeah. Um, you know, that's okay for kids, but not so much for grown-ups. Yeah. <laughs> but it's still, it's a blast. I mean, it's like 130 acres and all the craziness of camp as kids. Oh, wow. But at the same time, really cool like classes on making and business and all this other stuff. So. But it is, it's amazing, but it's also, it's complicated, you know, and we have a whole crew that helps us pull it off. So in the U.S., do you have people on the ground in the different cities then? We have some kind of production teams that we hire to help with certain things on site and we have to work with maybe sometimes the venues teams, you know, but that's just more of like the actual run of event. We have some people that are based like in Los Angeles, for example, but we didn't hire them because they're, you know, based in Los Angeles or anything Mm -hmm. like that. So we kind of pretty much just do everything online for the most part and handle like most things in-house, like production and vendor relations and, you know, design and, you know, marketing and all that good stuff. Yeah. I'm curious because you went to school for psychology. What was the other thing? Religious studies. Psychology Mm -hmm. and religious studies. And you're now ending up running this global renegade craft fair. Yeah, Um, totally different. (laughs) Profoundly different. But at the same time, you mentioned your dad was an entrepreneur and has his own business. Mm -hmm. Do you ever think about whether being exposed to that 
kindled this in you in any way or either like made you intrigued by it or made you not intrigued by it or, or resist it? Definitely. I mean, he was, you know, in a way like a mentor of mine. I was just so impressed by him. I mean, we don't work in the same fields at all. I mean, he was a lawyer, but he was just like very successful and people really looked up to him. He was just like a natural born leader and a mentor to many people. And I was just always so proud of him, like at his successes and his being able to like, you know, start his own law firm and that they had offices in, you know, five cities or something like that, including London. And yeah, I think I wanted to like make him proud and I wanted to do something just as special with my life and be just as successful. And so I felt like I really wanted to do something with my life and kind of take after him a little bit in that way. So mm. I think that definitely had an impact on me. That's pretty cool. Is he still around? No, he passed away. Nah. Was he here to see what you were doing? Yeah, he got to see, you know, some of the first events and was around when we started kind of like branching out into the first couple other cities and stuff. And he was very proud. Yeah. Yeah. I would have to imagine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like sort of like following in footsteps, but owning it in, in your own way, your own voice. Yeah. Very cool. I wish he was still around so I could ask him more questions about business and things like that. Yeah. But. Which actually brings up another interesting question, which is sort of, you know, as you're figuring this all out, as you go, do you have mentors? Do you have people who sort of turn around and who you can sort of bounce things off of to help you? I bounce a lot off my husband. He's kind of like an advisor of mine in the company because he's been there kind of the whole time and he just has a really good perspective on things and can help me kind of make decisions and decide like which cities to maybe expand into. And he gives me just, I think, a lot of courage. Like I feel like I have still just like this partner in crime that I just feel very supported by him. Mm. But I don't have any kind of like business mentors or anything like that. Yeah, it's sometimes a challenge. Like I wish I did, but I'm not exactly sure like where to find those people that kind of are in this industry or kind of like get what I'm doing. You know, it's like very different than traditional kind of like what traditional kind of entrepreneurs are up to, which is like all about the bottom line and money. And it's like way more kind of like corporate than our culture is. And so it's hard to find someone that's like quite like in the right field or something, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting too, because you said a couple of times that you, you've you gone into things not really looking at the bottom line, not doing spreadsheets around mm -hmm. it, almost like going on gut. Mm -hmm. It sounds like, you know, it's very much sort of a an intuitive and heart-centered approach to business. Yeah. We are very organized, I will say, though. I mean, we definitely have like spreadsheets and stuff like and lots of systems in place and things like that but I think yeah as far as like the decision making and how to grow and kind of who to hire and those types of things it's all very much based more on kind of like our company culture and just like our instinct and more about the people than necessarily their experience depending on kind of like what role they're going to fill but most of the people in our company kind of like don't have a background necessarily in the position they're filling it's just you know they're very creative and just fall in line with what we want and, you know, just like for who they are. Yeah. Was it intentional trying to build a culture like that around sort of a shared, I don't know, ethos or it just kind of happened? It just kind of happened. One of our first employees was just like a friend of ours. And then one of our next employees was kind of like 
the girlfriend of a friend of ours and that's how it kind of started but then when we started the formal hiring process I think people like are just the right people are attracted to our business and so we're lucky in that way that it's not that we're trying to recruit people that kind of like you know don't know what we're doing or don't already just love what we're doing so it's kind of just come together naturally but when you think about where you're expanding, like, where are you going with this? I think is one of the big questions in my head. Yeah. It seems right like now, you've... I think we need to slow down a little bit. Yeah. Um, we're like 13 people right now. I think we... Wait a minute. You're in how many cities? Well, we're in nine cities. And you're 13 people. Yeah. That's a lot of work. Yeah, it's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, maybe have kind of scaled it up a little bit too quick in the last year just because you feel understaffed and then you hire people to help out. But then the training and all that takes such a long time that when you're kind of doing that, like with four people at once, it's like, okay, well, maybe we can't like expand quite yet. Let's just like settle, let this settle for a year and then see where we want to go. But I would love to be in at least probably four or five more cities I can think of. Yeah. Are you looking more international? I did do some research into Berlin like a few years ago and have a venue there, but the logistics around it are kind of daunting, you know? I mean, I don't know German. We'd have to find probably a local. You really, yeah, you need somebody on the ground for real if you're doing that, yeah. And Tokyo. That would be another really cool place. Is there a big sort of craft maker culture in Tokyo? Yeah, I haven't done like a ton of research into it, but definitely like they love this kind of work and just seem really enthusiastic. And people have emailed us saying like, you should come here and, you know, bring the craft fair to Tokyo. And so I think it would do well. But again, it's like, I'm not quite sure how to make that happen. That's a huge move. Uh Maybe five years down the road or something we Um, can figure it out. It makes sense, actually, because there's, I mean, there is a, you know, like, obviously generations old sort of, like, devotion to actually really beautiful handmade things and mastery. Yeah. So, it would be so interesting to see what Renegade Craft would look like there. I know. I've got to imagine it would be be so different than sort of, like, what the average thing would look like in the U.S. Oh, for sure. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, each city has, you know, some of the same stuff, but then they each have their local flavor, too, and, like, little stylistic things that are only unique to that city. Mm. Yeah. So, you mentioned your husband is sort of an advisor. How long are you guys married? About eight years. Does he do something similar or no? He works for the company now. Uh, He kind of handles our partnerships and sponsorships. So you're his boss. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) kind (laughs) of. But he was a printmaker and is a printmaker and musician. So he's more of an artist by trade. And um, How'd you guys meet? We actually met in Chicago. He was working in a restaurant I walked into one day. And I just kind of like fell in love with him at first sight. And... Yeah, just kind of kept going back to the restaurant and trying to see him. And <laughs> yeah, and you're like, I don't, I don't care what kind of food it is. <laughs> yeah, so I pretty much inserted myself into his life, but it worked out. Yeah, yeah. And he was a printmaker. Yes, and, and a musician. Yeah, he was playing in bands. I actually hired him to do our first craft fair poster. Oh, uh, very cool. Yeah, like letterpress type of stuff or other things. Silkscreen. Oh wow. That's really neat. It's funny. I've actually gotten fascinated with letterpress. Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. Uh, yeah. we took. There's a couple places in Brooklyn, actually, where you can take classes and then rent press time. Oh, that's cool. So I've done a couple of workshops with my daughter, actually. But like screen printed would be – that's got to be really fascinating. Is there 
is that still done sort of like as an artisan sort of approach to sort of poster design and stuff like that a lot or? Definitely. I mean, I think before like they call them gig posters, you know, like mm. people making posters for rock shows and things like that. Right. There's like a whole community around that. And it was flourishing, you know, like 10 years ago and it's still going on. And he doesn't quite have the time to, you know, make it part of his like job or anything yeah. like that now he still does the craft fair posters but then he just kind of does work for himself and plays music still but he isn't doing like anything official with it right now but he's in the process of moving his studio from chicago to where we live now in michigan so he's hoping to kind of pick up more of that cool what was it like sort of making the decision to work together my wife and our business partners also oh cool and i'm always curious when you have other sort of like life partners also you know like working in business together sort of how people experience that yeah, I mean, it kind of just came out of, like, the need of needing more help. Like, we kind of got more inquiries about partnerships and sponsorships and that kind of thing, and I couldn't really handle them anymore. And so I asked him if he could take it on because he's just really great with people and could help, you know, make the partnerships, like, fit with Renegade and kind of, like, our values and things like that. And so I was just like, can you please do this job or whatever? So that's kind of how it initially started. And it just is stuck. Yeah. So it wasn't sort of like a sit down conversation. Like, let's talk about working together. It was just like, hey, can you help with this? Can you help with this? Yeah, no, we did kind of talk about that first. Like, what would that be like? Would that yeah. kind of damage our relationship in any way? Like, we need to set up boundaries around this. And Right. So did you? <laughs> not like firm boundaries, but yeah, we just like never really let it get in the way of our actual relationship. It just kind of feels like this thing we're doing together, like this project we're working on, it's like, you know, I guess technically he's my employee, but I don't really treat him that way necessarily. I mean, I kind of need to like ask him to do things or tell him when he's doing something wrong. I want it done differently, but we don't, you know, like really set hours aside and say like, okay, from 7 PM on, we're not going to talk about work. Although we probably should just for our own yeah. sanity. Because that's a conversation <laughs> that I, I've talked to a whole bunch of other people who are, you know, like they're partners in life and partners in business together in some way. Yeah. And that's one of the big things that I think a lot of people struggle with is, you know, especially when it's actually something that you're both really interested in and passionate about, like, you know, is there a moment, you know, where every day just the conversation about that, even if you're both into it, kind of has to stop and you want to zoom the lens out and you're like, what do we like, you know, let's, let's just talk about our life together. Let's just like talk about something else or let's just go do something that has nothing to do with this. Yes. We always keep ourselves in check about that because wow. we'll find ourselves talking about work still and like we work from home and so there's not always that clear boundary about like when does work start and then like where does it end and we're always together. I mean we spend probably 95% of our time together and mm. so I think because it is our business, you know, it just all feels enmeshed with our life, you know, and so we do try to like keep ourselves in check and say, like, what are we talking about right now? It's 10 p.m. Yeah. We don't want to talk about work anymore. <laughs> like, what else can we talk about? What do you think about the concept of work-life balance? It's tough, you know? It's definitely important, you know? Like, you can feel the burn if you just, like, work too much and you don't have other interests or hobbies or, like, sports you play or whatever. So I feel like I've gotten pretty good at it, but I think it's funny how people, like – creep into it and then it becomes this thing that you have to like consciously 
make an effort to do, you know, that you would think you would just naturally want to do more leisurely activities, but you find yourself kind of like obsessing about just like work, yeah. you know? But I, I think that's actually really common with with mission-driven entrepreneurs who really are like, there's a love for what they're doing that goes beyond, okay, I need to create a source of money. That's true. Because so many people I know would be doing this even if it was like their hobby on the side. Yeah. So it's sort of like if you just happen to be fortunate enough to actually have built it into something substantial enough where it's your main thing, then it gets really murky about like where is the line and whether there even should be a line. A friend of mine, Mitch Jules, has this great term. He calls it work-life blend. Mm. You know, and he's like, you know, it's, the work-life balance is a total myth. And if, especially if you're, you know, sort of a mission-driven, passionate, deeply interested entrepreneur or, or maker or creator, mm -hmm. I think I tend to agree with that too. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. I think you're right when it just feels like something you're passionate about, then, you know, maybe you shouldn't just have such a hard definition of it being work or something like that. So I really like that concept. I will find myself kind of feeling guilty about thinking about work. And I don't think that's the solution either, you know? Right, like, probably not all that healthy either, right? Yeah. So you're trying to create this balance and you're trying to like shut your brain off thinking about work, but it's like the harder you try to shut it off, like the stronger it becomes kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't work. And so maybe you should just let it be and then it'll naturally kind of fall away. Hopefully. Yeah. So you're also, I mean, as somebody who's sort of like your business, your lifeblood is on the ground, gathering people in person, and not just gathering people, so the community, like actual on the ground, in-person community is a huge part of what you're creating. And at the same time, around people who are working with their hands and creating physical, tangible things. I'm curious what your thoughts are on technology. Technology has been kind of just like the incubator of all of this, actually. Just because, you know, with the internet developing the way it did, it just has allowed people such as myself or creative people to make more of a living at being, you know, at making their thing. So they can have a website and social media and get the word out about their work. So it's kind of like 50% of the equation almost, you know, like they are in the studio all day and making things with their hands. And it is so much about the creative process, but they couldn't do that really without, you know, incorporating technology and being pretty savvy with kind of like social media and those types of things. Yeah. I think it makes sense. I think you could probably trace the explosion of a lot of the craft side of things to Etsy to a certain extent, you know, because they sort of became this online place that all of a sudden just gave people a giant, you know, virtual marketplace to create their own shingles. And I think brought a lot of awareness and legitimacy to the pursuit of craft and making as something which is like, you know, this is viable. You know, you can actually, it's okay to put effort into this mm -hmm. because no matter where you live, we're going to give you a way to potentially make a living. But in, so in a weird way, it's interesting because it's, I wonder if it's like from your perspective, that's something which has really helped you. But on this, at the same time, it's it's also you could kind of consider it a competitor at the same time. I don't think we could maybe have built our brand to this extent if there hadn't been Etsy, for example, because it was such a big platform and allowed so many more people to try and like sell their work online. Because otherwise, I mean, creating your own website is not the easiest thing to do or, no. you know, it's not like inexpensive. And people just don't really know how to do that, you know, and it was just so much easier for people to like get an Etsy site. And so I think that was 
a definitely like a springboard into the whole movement just becoming like as big and legitimate as you said so yeah talk to me about the community a little bit side of what you're doing you know there's the vendor there's the business there's the opportunity for people to make a living which is awesome so you you serve this like really benevolent thing because you're giving people access to delight and at the same time you're giving people who are making things the ability to actually earn a living through what you're creating it seems like a big part of what you're building though is community and especially between and among the vendors is that i mean at least that's what it feels like from the outside looking in has it been your experience that that's actually happened from the inside looking out yeah i mean it's been so much fun actually meeting all these different people that i would have never met otherwise you know yeah. people from all walks of life that live in all different cities and towns and everywhere i mean people just you know because they travel to do the different fairs not everybody but a lot of people do travel in and so you get to meet people from just everywhere and they all like you know have this in common so there is like this community vibe to it and they're all wanting to be supportive of each other and there's just like really good energy behind it all i mean you have some cranky people obviously like (laughs) but you get enough people together like in any part of life you're gonna have some cranky people yeah and i think it's just like this vibe of like we're doing it you know and people feeding off of each other and like you know sharing tips and tricks around it and kind of like helping each other and learning as we go and there's still just this kind of like diy mentality to it it's not super you know i mean everybody's trying to make a living but that's not like all what it's about you know i mean these people aren't like millionaires or anything like that it's definitely about we're doing something we're all passionate about this is cool like we've created this thing and then we're giving people the opportunity to buy work that's unique and you know you can't get a store that sells mass-produced things it's just i think people are just inspired by it yeah there seems to be I'm curious whether you see this in your community too, because I, I kind of remember this. It's funny. I'm having a flashback from being a kid with my mom, like on the street at a craft fair, but we would see all the same people, mm-hmm. you know, like on this, at the same things. And there was this really deep camaraderie and generosity, mm-hmm. you know, in a way that you generally don't see if you round up, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 vendors, mm-hmm. you know, in almost any other space where it's almost like, no, come buy my stuff. No, come buy my stuff. I remember as a kid among sort of like that community, there was this palpable sense of genuine friendship and generosity. Is that something that you see? Has that persisted? I think so. I don't think it's 100% that way. You know, I think there are some people that are a little bit more competitive about it or want people at their booth, but they would never say like, come over here instead or anything like like that. (laughs) Don't look at that. Come here. (laughs) It's better quality. Exactly. Yeah. But like people want to make money, definitely. And so there is a business side to it. It's not all just like happy vibes. It's not like just super, you know, kind of hippie like mentality. But yeah, I mean, everybody's like super nice and respectful to one another and willing to help someone out. Like if somebody's display falls down or something, you know, people like all kind of rally around and try to help each other. That's awesome. What's been your um, biggest surprise through this whole thing? I mean, I think I'm just surprised that it ever took off in the first place. Like, I didn't have any expectations for it. And so, it just is crazy to me still that something I created has become so big. As far as, like, what surprised me outside of that, 
I don't know that I have anything. Well, I guess like, it's almost like the mere existence of this at the level that it's at is yeah. your biggest surprise. Is, yeah. That sounds like what you're saying. Yeah. At this point, when you think about what you have, what's your biggest fear? I guess my biggest fear is just like, oh, is there an end to all this? Or what would that look like? I mean, we've just continually like kept to or continue to grow and grow and grow and grow. And so I just wonder, like, is there ever going to be a point where this kind of thing isn't, you know, trendy anymore or something like that? So that would maybe just be my biggest fear because then I'm like, what would I do or something? And like, what would all these people do in that case? But I try not to like really think about it too much. Nah. But it, it's an interesting question, just like sort of from a bigger business standpoint too, sort of like, is this is this a trend-based thing that you're riding or is this just a sustained build that's been part of humanity for a long time and this is just the next evolution of it? Yeah. Like, you can't really answer that question from the inside looking out. <laughs> Yeah. And as long as we just stay on top of kind of like current, you know, trends and things like that, I don't think, you know, what we're doing will die out. I think, you know, people over the years might have come to like associate Renegade with like a certain like look or niche or something like within craft. But actually, when you look at us, like how we've changed, like over the years, like we very much just like stay on top of all of that. So I think some people think like, oh, you know, at one point it was like lots of woodland animal kind of like inspired things or whatever. It's like, you don't really see that anymore. And I'm... I'm happy that people like sometimes try to say like, oh, that's not like cool anymore or something. It's like, well, that's not what we're doing anymore. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like, it's fun to just stay on top of it all. No, that's very cool. Coming back to the beginning of our conversation, the thing that got you started in this originally was that you were making your own stuff. You were a crafter, you were a maker, and you wanted a place to actually go out and do it. And it sounds like at this point, the thing that you're making, like your craft is, you know, the business of Renegade Craft Fairs. Do you, do you ever feel like you miss the actual just sitting down with your hands and making something from nothing that you can just sit back and look and like touch it and feel it and say, I made that? Definitely. I mean, I think if I ever could get more time that I would, you know, start making things again. It's just like my my life is kind of consumed with this craft of making these events happen. And there's a lot of creativity in that. I mean, I still, you know, jury all the applications and get to choose the artists that are going to participate. And, you know, we change kind of like our branding each year. And so I'm, you know, very involved in the art direction and just like choosing the venues, like is very exciting for me. Cause I like yeah. to choose more like unique venues. It's not just, we rent out convention centers in every city. It's like parks and warehouses and all like different sorts of things. So putting on the event to me feels very creative, but yeah, one day when I'm not doing this, maybe, super 110% full time that I will definitely get back into making things, but I don't know what I would do. I kind of started with jewelry and then like dabbled in other things over the years. And I think I sold my, I had my own booth still at the fair, like for nine years or something like that oh, wow. before I was like, so you're still we doing can't do both. side by side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Huh? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, maybe it was last year or the year before I sat down with a, a guest uh, named Sean McCabe who 
had like a full-time gig and his, he became just obsessed with letters and lettering and started hand lettering. He would literally practice writing letters for like eight hours every day after work. And he got really good at it really fast and put it on Instagram and built this huge following and, and then started teaching people how to do it. And, and he transitioned. So now he has a, you know, an entire company, which is built around creating media and training people on how to actually do these things and make a living. And he's doing very little. He kind of transitioned out of actually doing it himself. And I asked him a similar question. He's like, you know, he had this great idea. He's like, you know, like, I believe that, that we all have seasons. You know, so there was sort of the season for that. And he's like, I'm still hyper creative. Like, I still feel like I'm creating that Jones to just make. I'm doing. It's just, it's the season to do it in a different way. You know, and I kind I of, like I, I like that metaphor because I think it makes you feel okay about the fact that, you know, like you're not you know, like sitting there actually making something physical with your hands, but you're still sort of like, no, it's, it's the season for me to create differently. It, yeah, exactly. Uh, I like that. I was definitely like in the transition of deciding not to do that though, worried about it. Just like, well, can I still do the craft fair if I'm not an actual maker, you know, myself? And I don't know why I ever thought that (laughs) looking back, but you know, it's something I struggled with a little bit, but then. I'm curious whether when you're, when you're thinking that was, was any part of that thought process that I might lose credibility in the eyes of the other crafters, makers, vendors? If I'm no longer seen as sort of like, quote, one of them. I don't think I thought about it in that way. I'm not sure like who I thought my judge would be, except maybe mm. just like me. Like, why can't I do all all of it? You know, yeah. like I saw it as some sort of like flaw, like not being able to do it all or something Got like it. that. But once I just made that decision and then I started having more fairs, like not having my own booth. I mean, it wasn't a question at all. And nobody even ever like asked or anything like that. So sounds like you've also made peace with the notion of not being able to do it all at once. Yes, exactly. I think that's one of the things that entrepreneurs have to at some point come to very often on their knees as I have (laughs) many times. It's like, you know what, you're not going to survive and do everything. Yeah. I'm in it for the long haul. So, yeah. And, you know, like you can, that's why I love that season idea because, like, you can go back to this or you can shift, you know, like you can have it all, just not at the same time. Yep. So, coming full circle, the name of this is Good Life Project. So, I offer that term out to you. If I say, what does it mean to you to live a good life? What comes up? I think, like, just doing what you love if you can. You know, I mean, not everybody has gotten the chance to just make a living out of something they created or that they're super passionate about, but you can do that in other ways too. So, I mean, I think everybody has a little bit of a passion in some way and they can feel good about whatever that might be for them, whether it's their children or their yoga practice or, you know, it's just trying to live more in like a positive space rather than just thinking of everything as like a grind you know just try to like find something you love and and focus your attention and energy on that as much as you can thank you thanks hey thanks so much for listening we love sharing real unscripted conversations and ideas that matter and if you enjoy that too and if you enjoy what we're up to i'd be so grateful if you would take just a few seconds and rate and review the podcast. It really helps us get the word out. You can actually do that now right from the podcast app on your phone if you have an iPhone. You just click on the reviews tab and take a few seconds and jam over there. 
And if you haven't yet subscribed while you're there, then make sure you hit the subscribe button while you're at it, and then you'll be sure to never miss out on any of our incredible guests or conversations or riffs. And for those of you, our awesome community who are on other platforms, any love that you might be able to offer sharing our message would just be so appreciated. Until next time, this is Jonathan Fields signing off for Good Life Project. This story is presented by Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA produced by ACAS Creative. 25 years ago, Invesco QQQ rethought the investing landscape by providing access to the NASDAQ's 100 most innovative companies all in one ETF. With Invesco QQQ, investors saw all the possibilities that innovation could deliver. Personally, I had a wake-up call in my 30s that led me to invest deeply in myself to unlock new possibilities. I walked away from a career as a lawyer, overhauled my lifestyle through mindset and exercise and nutrition, and completely reimagined my career. And it was unsettling at times, but that investment in my potential allowed me to live so much more creatively and with purpose and passion. Invesco is proud to sponsor the new Ways to Win podcast, hosted by longtime coaches and mentors, Craig Robinson and John Calipari. So in Ways to Win, the coaches use their on-court wisdom to solve for off-court problems and help you find a winning formula for success. In this clip from the show, we'll hear Craig share his advice for weighing a decision to switch from investment banking to full-time coaching. Let's take a listen. The advice that I would give somebody who's weighing a decision that is less risky or more risky, I always tell them to work back from what they're wanting to accomplish right? What the reward is, what's at the end and work back and try and set yourself up to get to where you want to get to. Because sometimes taking a risk is the right thing to do to get something that you want. And what I try and counsel people to do is not be afraid to take risks. Because if you set yourself up properly with a good education, a great network of friends, and you've got family behind you, you can usually weather most storms if things don't work out the way you thought they'd work out. So listen to Ways to Win wherever you get your podcasts to get more wisdom from Craig. Nobody knows what's ahead, but one thing's for certain. You can access tomorrow's innovation today with Invesco QQQ ETF. Let's rethink possibility. So thank you for listening to this special story brought to you in partnership with Invesco QQQ and produced by ACAS Creative. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs risk are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more defined investments. The NASDAQ 100 index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco is not affiliated with ACAS Creative. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business 
to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.